Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Welcome back to our study of the book of Malachi. In our last session, we explored the time and the setting of the book and concluded that it was roughly sometime around the 5th century, contemporaneous with the ministries of Ezra and Nehemiah. And if we had to be more specific, probably just before their work. So sometime in the early 5th century BC. This was not the most devastating time in Israel's history, but neither was it the golden age that so many had hoped for with the return from exile. The temple had been rebuilt, the priesthood was operating, but things weren't really going according to plan, or at least according to their plan. Enter Malachi. We are only going to look at the first verse in this session, so just be forewarned, in future episodes, I plan to move more quickly through the text, but there's so much introductory material in verse 1 that it really warrants a whole episode. A literal translation of the Hebrew text would be an utterance, the word of Yahweh to Israel by the hand of Malachi. Let's look at each part of this heading. The first word, which I've translated an utterance, is often used to describe a vision or a prophetic message. Older translations, like the King James, have burden. Now, the contents of Malachi are definitely what we would call heavy, and the Hebrew word used here uh, is for loads or things that are carried. But what we have in places like this is a reference simply to a message, a prophetic oracle. The Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament suggests that this comes from lifting up a voice, and that's how something that is lifted came to mean a message. But whatever the etymology, its use in the Hebrew Bible shows that this word introduces a serious and somber message. Now, this somber message is said to be to Israel. This is perhaps a bit unexpected if you were able to hear the previous session of our study and are keeping track of where we are on the biblical timeline. The northern country of Israel, that is, the northern ten tribes, were taken off to captivity almost three centuries before the composition of Malachi. And, of course, it was much earlier than that, during the reign of Solomon, when the whole people were one nation called Israel. Instead, as we discussed in our last episode, Malachi's audience is called by scholars Yehud, uh, just a small part of the province or sub-province, uh, which itself was just one among many satrapies that made up the Persian Empire. We might wonder then, why does Malachi use the anachronistic term Israel? Well, Malachi isn't alone in doing this. Ezra and Nehemiah do it as well, and so does later literature like Maccabees and even the New Testament. Peter Vierhoff's explanation I think is really well done and worth quoting here. He says, quote, This name is not used to distinguish between the people and the priests, but is an indication of the whole remnant of the people. This comprehensive term is used to denote the covenant nation, the exiles mainly from the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi, together with the descendants of those who remain behind. It is important to stress the unique significance of the term Israel in this historical context. It is a mere remnant of God's people, but as such, it represents the entire nation. Irrespective of their numbers, failures, and sins, 
They were the representatives of the people of God, the bearers of his promises, the mediators of his revelation. The mention of the name Israel also suggests the people's responsibility in terms of the expression noblesse oblige. The indicative of their eminent position corresponds with the imperative of their calling to be the holy covenant nation, end quote. So putting these two elements together, an utterance to Israel sets the audience up to receive a somber, significant message, tying them back to their long history. Now, the seriousness of what is about to be communicated is also indicated uh, by the source of this message. And again, a literal translation of the Hebrew might be an utterance, the word of Yahweh to Israel by the hand of Malachi. Or, alternatively, it could be an utterance, the word of Yahweh to Israel by the hand of my messenger. That E ending on Malachi uh, is the pronominal one-person singular suffix. So in English, we would say my, and then Malak is uh, messenger or angel. Currently, there's no scholarly consensus as to if we should understand the Hebrew Malachi as a proper noun, that is, a name, or something more like a title. And actually, there's good evidence on both sides. One of the most significant pieces of evidence against it being a name, and instead for it being a title, is that the idea of God's messenger occurs so prominently in this document. It's one of the main ideas. The priests in chapter 2 are to be messengers of God, communicating his will to the people. We read of at least one, maybe two messengers in the beginning of chapter 3, probably to be connected with chapter 4 and the coming Elijah. Christians see these messengers as either John the Baptist, Jesus, or even some other future messenger. It may be that the name, which literally means my messenger, is just too convenient or coincidental to be the one given to him by his parents. It's an oversimplification, but we can think of someone watching professional wrestling, and on comes a wrestler. And this is, I'm going to show my ignorance here about professional wrestling, but I do know the name The Rock. And as someone says, uh, here he is, The Rock has entered the ring. Now, what kind of a person would say, what a coincidence that his parents named him The Rock. Look how chiseled he is. It fits him perfectly. No, that's a name he's taken on himself to project a certain persona. Some similarly argue that it would have been presumptuous for a parent to name a child my messenger as if they knew that God would choose him to be a prophet. And this is supported by the fact that Malachi is nowhere else recorded as a person's name from around this time, nor is there any early information about historical Malachi. Several interpreters have taken this as a title and not as a name as well. Jewish tradition in the Talmud records the belief that Malachi was actually a name for Ezra, a tradition followed by Jerome and even Calvin. Targum Jonathan, an Aramaic translation of uh, the Hebrew, similarly translates Malachi 1.1 as Malachi, whose name is Ezra the scribe. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, which dates back quite early actually, could go both ways. It transliterates the name of the book, so it starts Malachi at the top of the page, but then when it comes to the actual text of what we call Malachi 1.1, it has by his messenger. It changes the first person possessive my to the third person his and translates the Hebrew word at that juncture instead of transliterating it 
letter by letter as if it were a name. Lastly, we can remember that uh, the location of Malachi on the timeline, the intertestamental or second temple writings, are often featured by anonymity or pseudonymity. On the other hand, there are some good reasons to see Malachi as the name of a person. In other occurrences, when we read, by the hand of so-and-so, usually what follows is an actual person's name. So, yes, Malachi could be the beginning of a trend seen later of having anonymous prophecy, but it could just as easily be the last of a line of canonical prophecy in which the author is specified. Also, there are early interpreters who do understand it as a person's name. A second Esdras, dating to the 2nd century AD, takes it this way. The Latin Vulgate is similar here, as are some other translations. It's too late to really weigh in on the issue, but you might be interested to know that the 4th century Lives of the Prophets records that Malachi was born in Sofa after the exile and that even in boyhood he lived a blameless life since all the people paid him honor for his piety and mildness they called him Malachi Angel. He was also fair to look upon. Also, by way of response, those who advocate for the personal name view could also point out that the argument that Malachi's name is significant is more complicated than we might think. Moses' name, for example, which means drawn from the water, is very significant and really summarizes the whole idea of the Exodus, as not only was he taken out of the water as a baby, but this foreshadows him leading the people out of the water through the Red Sea. And of course, there are many names that are like this in the Bible. So we can't just go around saying that people can't have certain names because they are deeply significant to their work. So the evidence is actually pretty evenly divided. It would be a lot easier if one one said it was by the hand of his messenger, uh, but that too isn't determinative since pronouns are so slippery in Hebrew. Well, that's a lot of information, both pro and con for taking Malachi as the name of the author. I doubt the issue will ever be finally resolved. And yet, we absolutely do know who the author is. Don't miss this. The author of Malachi should be crystal clear. Again, 1-1, an utterance, the word of Yahweh to Israel by the hand of Malachi. Whoever Malachi was, the somber message comes not ultimately from him, but through him. The message is merely by the hand of Malachi. And the message is, ultimately, the word of Yahweh. This powerful book has never seriously had its canonicity in question. Again, the apocryphal Ben Sira references Malachi around 180 BC, and it occurs several times in the New Testament, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul. For a long time, people have been able to recognize the true origin of this work. It is holy scripture and comes from the very mouth of God. Again, whether or not Malachi refers to an actual name or a title that the prophet has given himself, the significance of its meaning must be kept in mind. My messenger. In fact, this gets at one of the big themes in the work. As we will see, the first major section of Malachi takes aim at the priests. But chapter 2, verse 7 tells us of why the priesthood is such a big deal. Quote, because the lips of a priest guard knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth, because he is a messenger of Yahweh Sabaoth, or Lord of hosts. 
The priests had neglected this responsibility, this awesome and holy calling. So what's the answer according to Malachi? Does he just say, nah, no more messengers. You keep messing that up. The project just didn't work. No, the answer is that God will send another messenger. He will send another Elijah to turn people's hearts. This is really an important theme that runs throughout Malachi, and it's crucial that we get the assumption here. When people are lost in sin, what does God do? He sends a messenger. People need revelation. This is a serious and somber matter, to be entrusted with the oracles of God. I think we could make a parallel here with the Gospels, and I'm thinking particularly of the document we call the Gospel of John. Technically, all of the Gospels are anonymous. The author of the Gospel of John has included his own cameo appearances throughout the narrative. But instead of bringing attention to himself, he simply calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was hidden away behind the significance of what God was doing. And that's what Malachi is doing here. Whether it was his name that his mom or dad gave him or a title that he gives himself is really not the point. The point is that the author is just described as a messenger. We do well to balance the unimportance and importance of that. So too, for those who are called to speak, we should think of Peter's admonition in 1 Peter 4.11. Whoever speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. It's an awesome, terrifying thing to be entrusted with this utterance. But at the end of the day, what matters isn't you or me, but the message that we carry. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu slash partner.